Hello everyone, this is Solimar Sala, and today we will be interviewing John Stack, Head of Digital Transformation at the Chief Museum, and Elena Villespasa, Web Analyst and Producer, also with the Tate. Hello and welcome. Hello. Hello. So, for today's talk, we wanted to focus on digital strategy and analytics and we've seen that Tate has had a very strong point of view in, and a very active um, point of view in their digital strategy with your 2010 and 2012 plan and also with the upcoming 2013, which is already in place, 2015, and digital strategy. And we wanted to talk a little bit with both of you about that. So starting with, in the Tate Digital Strategy 2013-2015 document, its vision includes developing digital strategy skills across the organization. Is the overall goal to have everybody, at least those who will be creating content on staff, more comfortable with digital skills and start to instinctively think about projects and tasks in a way they can identify what can be valued, valuable content for the Tate Digital Presence? How do you see that working out? Um, in a word, yes, that's exactly what it means. Um, and so where this has come from was we, in, in the development of the strategy, uh, we undertook a large number of stakeholder interviews throughout the organization. And out of that, a kind of set of themes, themes emerged, um, which were that a lot of departments in, uh, across the organization were looking to generate a lot more content and they uh, and to use the kind of community uh, aspects of social media and blogging and so on in, in their work and they really felt that they were ready to uh, start undertaking that uh, activity uh, immediately um, but what we didn't have was, okay, and, and then in parallel with that, what, what started to happen was that digital activity started to appear in the various strategy documents and plans of, of departments across the organization. And we also started to see new jobs appearing in, uh, in other departments that had a very digital focus. So where, <clears throat> where perhaps, you know, three or five years ago, a digital marketing manager would have sit, uh, you know, sat within the web department. Now, what we were seeing was this role in the marketing department, and there were similar uh, roles appearing also in the research department and in, and in the learning department and in other places. So, mm -hmm. what was happening was a kind of decentralisation of digital activity from, you know, a small centralised team undertaking all that work and having all those skills there to it appearing across the organization. And so we identified that, I mean, really what this shows is an organization that's uh, becoming much more mature and is thinking about digital, and so this is something that needs supporting through training and skills and processes uh, and so on. That makes sense. I think you start seeing that. I think I mentioned a little bit later on how you start seeing different titles coming up from what the traditional 
job job descriptions or job placements are in museums, head of digital content and all that. So I definitely, and it also be, leads everybody to become more involved and also makes everybody think about digital content in a more active way and not something that the IT department has to do. Right, and, and digital skills are not a core competency of, an, of a museum. Um, and, in, and in a sense, what we have to go through is a kind of shift from um, digital being seen as an add-on to existing activities, so something that is thought of at the end or, or separately from everything else, to something that's really embedded and enabled across the organization. Because in um, you know in five years' time, in all likelihood, there is no digital marketing manager at the museum because all digital all marketing managers are doing digital activity. So we're kind of in this sort of transition from uh, a place where digital skills exist mainly within a kind of web or online or new media department to one where that these skills and activities are happening, happening everywhere across the organization. And there seems to be a number of ways of getting there. One is new roles are created. Well, let's back up a second. So, so in, when, as we start to undertake these new activities around the organization, I mean, fundamentally what it is, is you know, people creating digital content, uh, people using social media, publishing directly uh, to the website, and people sort of moderating online communities. And then there's an additional aspect which is kind of e-commerce fundraising and a lot of activity in that area. So what these things will enable are colleagues throughout the gallery to do the things that they're doing every day anyway, they're doing education, they're doing uh, marketing, they're doing research, uh, they're working in the archives. So to carry on doing those same things, so the, so the core skills stay the same, and the values, importantly, also stay the same, but the ways of achieving the objectives change. So, uh, so there seems to be a way of getting there where we hire new people with new skills into new jobs. And we've certainly seen that happen within Tate. Um, and then that doesn't kind of scale across the organization. So one of the things that we're really focusing on now is how do you scale up the existing workforce? Um, and that's a kind of major component of the work that we're going to do over the next sort of couple of years. Well, that's, that's an interesting and a good way of, of looking at it. Um, I guess a lot of this, a lot of these changes and, and ways of thinking also impact your human resources. With the generational, I don't, I'm not familiar with, with generational staff members of the TR, which would lead me to, to ask about how how are these trainings going to be? Um, when you talk about curatorial, greater curatorial engagement in your digital strategy through blogs and in gallery content, will you be, um, how do you offer 
the, the curators or whoever's going to be generating content, that new point of view of you can't write digital content in the same way you write for um, an academic publication. It's a different style, and from my experience, not a lot of curators are very familiar or comfortable with it. Will you be, how are you going to tackle that, or if that is even an issue at the tape? Um, no, it is an issue. We don't know yet because we're still quite early stages. But the thinking currently is, in the first instance, to kind of do a map of the organization around who is producing what content and who is managing and moderating which communities, and to work out, you know, kind of where there are gaps and where there are overlaps and where this is happening in a very sort of structured way, whether it's a kind of bit, some kind of business process, meaning that uh, you know, it's, it's clearly understood who's doing what and, and why and, what, and they have the right skills and where that's not the case. Um, something like writing for the web, I can definitely see a future where that's you know, such an important skill across the organization that it's actually run within the, you know, within the organization. So I wouldn't be at all surprised if in a few months we're looking at a list of you know, 30 or 40 or even 50 people across the organization who need to you know, go on a writing for the web course. And, um, and so that, and, and, and then we would run that on a kind of rolling basis. Um, one, of the, one of the things that you know, your point sort of uh, touches on is at the moment, or, or perhaps not even at the moment, historically what has happened is that there's been a very small number of people in the organization and within the gallery who have, you know, who are kind of like editors of the content that is seen outside. And so they would be people in the interpretation department, you know, looking at wall labels and little pamphlets for the exhibitions and displays. They would be publishers in the uh, publishing, sorry, they would be editors in the publishing department. Uh, they would be in the, uh, editors in the research department looking at the kind of scholarly content. There would be press officers and there would be marketing managers and so on. And, and what we're moving to now is something that really means that you know, a great many more people across the organization are undertaking those activities. And many and they're not and those communications and those that content is not necessarily going through uh, the same kind of editorial workflow. So, you know, so in a sense, the the person who is maybe twenty five years old and has only worked in the museum for a few years, uh, but is running a Twitter um, account with you know hundreds of thousands of people following is suddenly as powerful or as influential as the head of press was five or ten years ago, and that's a big mm -hmm. shift for the organisation to understand that you know that we need to operate differently because we can't stop that you know the affordances of digital are so great that we can't kind of return to the old ways and try and lock everything down and say, well, every tweet needs to go through a kind of committee to, you know, to approve it. I've seen it happen. 
So I, I very much understand what you're talking about. And this, that's very interesting also when reading the digital strategy. When you talk about developing an editorial center that coordinates and generates content around the museum's programs. So that this also touches on what you were saying of, of giving it the importance of Of, of new fields and new areas to develop and how digital content is getting as much importance and protagonism in in the media and with the public, general public, as print media. So definitely, I think you already mentioned this, there are new new areas and new and new opportunities for for new jobs focused on this practice. So I thought the editorial center concept was a great thing. What I would, and if you have anything. Yeah. Go ahead. Um, well, what I tried to address was that on the one hand, we have to be... Okay, so so the, so the audience's attention is both... Uh, well, it, it, it's much more... Um, uh, it's spread across many more channels. So it may be that some uh, a member of the audience only receives emails, or only hears about us when they read about us in the newspaper, or only follows us on Twitter, or only follows us on Facebook. <clears throat> and so, on the and then at the and then on the other side, we have you know proliferation of channels and people speaking from within the organisation. So many more voices, many more individuals speaking, writing blogs, using social media accounts. So on, the, so on the one hand, when we want to, uh, you know, kind of empower our staff to use digital uh, media and, and kind of communities and, and make content to fulfill their objectives within their department or within their role, they need the freedom to be able to do that as much as possible and be kind of unencumbered by bureaucracy, uh, you know, and, and control. And yet on the other hand, if we have a kind of important or key message, so we have a big exhibition that, that we want to launch, or we want to announce, uh, you know, a major uh, request of new artworks into the collection, or we have a, you know, an annual arts prize that we're administering. You know, at these points we suddenly need to be coordinated as we have never been coordinated before, because because in the past. You know, the marketing department and the communications department could essentially pull all of those messages together and manage that kind of campaign. Mm -hmm. And now, where we're producing, you know, a lot of these marketing and communications campaigns are really underpinned by editorial content producing across the organization. This requires a whole new set of skills around, well, who is coordinating that? Who is setting the messages? Who is making sure that we're tweeting these things at the right moment? Um, and you know, we're, we're kind of speaking as one voice. So, and there's a sort of tension there between, on the one level, you know, coordinating as we've never coordinated before, and on the other level, kind of letting things go and, you know, kind of empowering staff to, to talk about their work and, and, and what they're doing uh, as we've never done before, too. Well, that's very interesting and very true. And I think this is might we say, growing pains that several institutions will have to endure as we change the way we communicate with audiences. Very yes. interesting. 
and it is growing pains because 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 our because museum organisational structures are not set up to work this way. You know, and the exactly. digital, yeah, and the digital is not really a respecter of departmental boundaries. So, kind of organising mm -hmm. the, the traditionally the organisation has been structured very hierarchically and to operate at really quite a slow pace. And suddenly we're asked to operate in a much more networked way, with decisions being made, you know, much faster and across multiple departments. And we're really not used to that, and we're not structured that way. Right. And then that also leads me to a, one of my questions, and that is, how many people were involved, directly and indirectly, in developing this strategy? Because, as you mentioned, Museum, the museum has to start operating in a more networked way. So you're touching several different departments or divisions that will be impacted directly by the strategy. How many, how, how did you work with them in, towards developing the strategy? Um, myself and the director who I, who's, who's my boss, um, who's mm -hmm. the director of media and audiences, we interviewed, uh, I think in the end, it was more than 100 people across the organization in, in small oh groups. And what we tried to do was interview in each department the director and then, and then all of the heads of departments. And then we kind of knew other people who were in their teams and were more junior members of staff. And we tried to bring them in as well so that the because often, you know, a lot of the great ideas are going to come from, uh, you know, they're going to come from the, the younger members of staff rather than, you know, who are actually operationally doing the things within the department rather than the heads of the department who are worrying about budgets and, and all that kind of stuff, and the directors who right. are sort of setting direction, but in all likelihood have been through their whole careers without having to sort of think about digital things too much. Um, mm -hmm. And and then we'll, and then the, before we produced the, stat, the strategy, what we did was produce a, a shorter document that really pulled out themes from across the organisation uh, and presented that. And the themes were really kind of playing back what what we had heard from within the you know from across the organisation. So the, of the kind of 15 areas that are outlined in the strategy, um, the ones at the end are a lot to do with organizational change and development, which we just kind of talked about a bit. And the earlier ones were uh, kind of key projects that were either happening in the organization or, or were there seemed to be a consensus that this was something that the organization really wanted or it seemed to be, you know, that we were hearing a lot of different people talking about. Or they were projects that clearly needed to happen. And, and one of the things that uh, they all have in common is there's a kind of transformational element in them. So we come out of it working differently. So we're working on a large digitization of the archive. Uh, so all of the artworks are digitized, but we have this archive of letters and, and sketchbooks and ephemera and so on from artists. And well, when we come out of it, you know, having completed the project, we'll have an archive department that's really set up for ongoing digitization. And so each of these projects in some way results in us working differently and transforming how the organization kind of operates. Wow. That's, 
yeah, just so many other levels that keep popping up. And then one of the other things I wanted to ask you about was there are four physical structures that fall under the TEAT brand. Um, what is the best way to implement this digital strategy? And also because the plan suggests incorporating tablets onto the TEAT Britain galleries and then more interactive comment walls linked to social media at the Tate Modern, like the ones you used at the tanks. And I wondered, why not both technologies in all of your museums, or, or, or maybe why customize each experience to the museum? Does it have to do with the collection that they present or the audience they serve? Um, that's a good question. So the reason really is that the different um, kind of approaches to the in-gallery digital kind of interactive screens and so on have come from different kind of tactical, um, you know, projects or pieces of money. Um, mm -hmm. So the ones that take modern are funded by Bloomberg and they really build on a whole, you know, many years of Bloomberg sponsoring interpretation at Tate Modern, the activity at Tate Britain, which is launching uh, in about a week, just finishing up at the moment, is really part of a big communication campaign around the, Tate, you know, the reopening of Tate Britain and, and the large-scale renovation of some of the gallery spaces. Um, why not you know, choose one uh, technology or one approach and implement it across them all, I, I think that is where we will get to in a few years. So in a sense, both of these things are kind of prototype, prototypes for that. So in the same way that there's only one website, you know, and that's, uh, and the reasons for that are to kind of avoid this to confusion, but also it's a much more kind of sustainable approach. So, that's the reason. It's kind of tactical, and but I agree, it, it is something that at some point we'll have to kind of consolidate and say, okay, well, what is the digital experience that you'll get when you come to a Tate Gallery? And that will be then be across all four of the galleries. I was just wondering, and but you do bring up a good point. You can do several different projects in each of the institutions and have that serve as a as a test drive for each one and see how each how the audience reacts and what they respond to more. Interesting. Um, and then that also would actually, there was another question we had, which, which was, as attending to audiences becoming more significant to museum practice, museological approaches changed. Now that these audiences include online audiences and new expectations for openness, transparency, and other, among others, how do you see the job of art curator, exhibitor, and other staff within the museum changing? And I think we might have touched upon this earlier on when when we spoke about how how they will start also collaborating and contributing directly onto the digital media. Right, and that's not. And so, in in the past, there's been on our previous website, which we uh, kind of decommissioned in early 2012. Um, 
practically none of the content on the website had a byline. So it didn't say who had authored it. So there were a handful mm -hmm. of blogs and certainly some of the art historical kind of scholarly catalog entries had the name of the curator who had written them. And what you see now is you know, a very much larger uh, amount of the content on the website says who it's been authored by. And so that's across project pages and blogs and articles and so on. And that kind of really changes the, you know, how the, the museum's brand is constructed. Because it used to be that we would be able to very closely control our messaging but, and who was saying what. And, and it was, you know, like in a kind of printed brochure, you could sub-edit and very carefully approve each thing that was being said. And now what we're going to have is a, is a museum brand that's very much constructed of many voices from across the organization. And that's going to be a much bigger shift for us uh, than I think a lot of people in the, in the museum really understand. So there's going to be a kind of move to openness and transparency um, and you know, all kinds of people from within the organization having all kinds of direct relationships with people, uh, you know, the audience members. And so that's, a, you know, it's a big shift. And, you know, in some instances, the, the staff will kind of welcome that because they'll see they can do their job better in this way. And in other instances, they're going to come and resist it. They'll see themselves as too busy or this is not something that you know, someone in my role does. I think I saw an example of what you're describing in the art map blog I was looking at a while back. That each blog, or most of the blogs, are done by at least five or six different people. And it really, I felt it bring it brought me into the project in a way because everybody you're learning about the different steps of the development of that program, which I think is supposed to be completed by December of this year, right? Uh, yeah, in fact, it will go on into, it's going to go on into, into next year. Oh, well, and congratulations and good luck with that. And what, I mean, what's interesting about that is that that project, you know, there's many different perspectives on the project from within the project group. Uh, so that's been kind of really interesting because that's then reflected on the, on the blog with different members mm -hmm. of the project team kind of talking about it from their own angles. And it's also very interesting, in addition to appreciating everybody's point of view on the project, is how everybody is also working towards the same goal. So you see that unity, that unifying aspect of, of having several different departments or divisions collaborating onto one project and being so open about it. Definitely a wonderful thing. And also, and just touching on a previous conversation I had with another colleague, the the advent of um, location-based apps. It was a shame this wasn't implemented uh, this summer when I was in London. I would have loved to have been able to do that. So I, that means I have to visit again. Um, and so going on to, I think, this can be a transitional question between our digital strategy and our analyzing metrics. I, you did mention in the strategy that um, you would implement the hub and spoke model. 
And I'd like to know if you can offer an example of the hub-and-spoke model and also um, the metrics that you're using to monitor this. Um, well the I mean, the hub-and-spoke model really describes how we'll handle the transition from all digital activity happening within one small team with a, a small number of very highly skilled digital staff to some kind of future state where digital activity is enabled and sort of embedded across the entire organization and the organization is sort of working efficiently in some way uh, or networked way was the way you described it and I think that's right. Uh, you know, to maximize the opportunities and and so there's a sort of transitional state which is a digital department as a sort of a hub with a certain set of activities and, and skills there and then uh, other departments around the organization working kind of as spokes where they will kind of manage content and uh, communities and they'll, they'll have a certain amount of uh, specialist digital skills so if they're working in the archive looking at born digital archives that seems like a skill that should be in the archive and not not in the digital department and then within the digital department operating as a kind of hub will be uh, obviously a lot of technical stuff there'll be uh, kind of analytics and audience insights and we'll come to them in a second and there'll be design and uh, production and project management and then critically there'll also be some kind of editorial coordination one of the risks of the hub and spoke structure is every spoke ends up just kind of doing whatever it wants and heading off in its own direction and the thing very quickly descends into a very kind of uh, chaotic and uncoordinated um, you know, uh, presence out into the um, to the outside world. So in a sense what it is is a kind of a way of describing to the organization you know the, the, in, in this stage these are the things that we want you to focus on and um, and then and these and these are the things that we're going to hold at the center which it doesn't make sense for you to, to take on even if you want to so I think what, you know even when we move into kind of beyond the hub and model into a kind of more embedded phase you know things like design and uh, te technology and, and kind of deep audience insights will undoubtedly remain in some sort of digital department but we'll see more and more activity happening outside and around the organization and in fact we, a lot of these things we do already see and so we're kind of responding to the way the organization is already going And how do you work the analytics? How how do you monitor how people are, are working with it, this hub and spoke model? I don't know if maybe you or Elena can share some of of what's um, going on behind the scenes. Yeah, in this uh, hub and spoke uh, model, um, in the digital team, we coordinate the audience insights. Um, we do um, a monthly. Um, reports, which includes uh, the main metrics for the different digital activities. We uh, do the annual survey uh, to understand users, uh, create a user segmentation and understand like the main um, 
many of the metrics like satisfaction. And what we want also is that uh, people in, in the scope, in, in different departments, are able to monitor and evaluate uh, their own activities. So we are creating uh, different dashboards uh, for uh, different departments. So um, as an example, we have dashboards for the research department, so they can um, see every month how many views and their papers got. Or we have one for the online shop, so they can track um, sales, see what are the search terms people um, are looking at um, on the online shop. Um, we have another one for learning, so uh, they can monitor how many downloads uh, their teachers pack have. So these are some examples. So we have um, we have training sessions uh, about digital analytics, so they they can understand uh, different metrics and they and so at the end they are able to monitor their own activities. That's a good way of also creating awareness within the institution of how important metrics are and and how the public or who you're doing this for is reacting and, and what, if anything, needs to change or adapt. I, I, think, I think that's one of the, importance about, the important factors about metrics and just analyzing things. And I think that's also very, um, it, it shows really well with the example of the tanks. Um, and also when you spoke about sentiment analysis or opinion mining, when you were talking about um, the data collected um, with the tanks project um, last year, would you or could you, Elena, talk a little bit more about how the Tate is benefiting from this and how the institutions are using the information that they gathered from from the sentiment analysis of the tanks project? Or maybe John, if you have anything you can add. Um, well, the the analysis we did of the tweets for the tanks uh, was. One of the first experiments we did uh, working together, um, the digital team, uh, the audience research manager, and the interpretation team. Um, so just to give a bit of context, um, the tanks were um, were new spaces uh, at Tate Modern. They they are very industrial, and it was the first space dedicated um, for life art, and there were different installations, films. So it was a new space, uh, a state modern, and also different type of art to uh, normally to be normally shown uh, on display there. So we were very interested in knowing um, what people thought about that space and that type of art. So we tried different uh, things to understand people's uh, feelings in this uh, new space. So we did uh, the the traditional surveys in the gallery, then also the uh, visitor experience team uh, were collecting uh, visitor comments. And then uh, as a test, um, we, we tried to analyze what people were saying uh, on Twitter. Um, so we had a hashtag, hashtag the tank, um, so people could use to leave um, their comments. And there was in the space an interactive wall um, so if you were tweeting something and adding the hashtag, then your tweet will appear automatically projected uh, on the wall. And there was an option um, as well to do it um, with 
expensive and, and a secret and also um, put your comment there. So um, sentiment, yeah, we did the sentiment analysis of a sample of tweets and what was interesting is that when we met to compare results of these different research methods is that um, the sentiment was very uh, similar in, in proportion, in, I mean the percentages uh, were very similar and also the, the topics and, and the other themes of, of the tweets and also visitor comments yeah, in the gallery. So um, there is yeah, probably an opportunity uh, using social media to understand people's reaction in the gallery. There are also some challenges and some limitations because when we did this um, experiment, we tried uh, to use some automated tools that, that did not work uh, very well because, um, for example, if people were using words like creepy or obscure, which <laughs> may define the, the space, then um, it will be coded as negative, while actually the, the experience of the, of the visitor was uh, quite positive. So there are some challenges using sentiment analysis, but some opportunities in, for uh, visitor research. And what happens if, um, because I think this is one of the, I guess, vulnerabilities of, of social media is um, the audience that's just there. I don't want to say digital stalkers, um, because I, sometimes I'm one of them, but they just join in and they view, so you know you reached an audience, but they don't necessarily share, or they don't share in a way that's easy to monitor. They don't use hashtags, or they don't use maybe a keyword. Um, how do you, is there a way to compensate for for these, this, the public that doesn't necessarily interact the way you need it to in order to quantify your, your analysis? Um. Well, I think, yeah, of course, there are always uh, some limitations um, in your data set. Um, depending on the platform you use, I don't know, Twitter, Facebook, uh, Pinterest, there are different demographics who, who use it, different motivations um, to use it. So, yeah, you need always to bear this in mind. And, yeah, you cannot track everything. Um, <laughs> yeah, you, you don't, yeah, we, we, we I mean, you don't know what people are talking in the cafe after um, seeing an exhibition, so <laughs> you can't um, track everything. But if you, um, depending yeah, on the platform, you may know a bit about the demographics, about um, who, are, who are using those platforms, and, and then compare it with uh, the other research you do in, in, in the gallery, like the surveys. And mm -hmm. You can see how reliable and how robust uh, your data and your conclusions are. So I mean, it does it does provide for an interesting point of view, and I do think that as as generations move along, interaction will be more instinctive, and uh, everybody will understand what the hashtag is and how to use it. And maybe we won't even have hashtags in the future; we'll have something else. So it's an ever-changing technology and way of communicating. So and also, and another thing we I wanted to um, talk to you about was you did mention that another one of the, I guess, obstacles um, when when doing your queries for for the for the analysis is language barriers. 
And of course, because I'm a Spanish speaker, I'm a native Spanish speaker, I'm always looking into the bilingual aspect of of these technologies and museums. One of the projects that we want to do at my museum is get everything fully bilingual, at least English and Spanish, just to target a broader audience for tourists and visitors. And then, how do you have any, I guess, short-term plans um, in, as to how to compensate for for this language barrier that maybe somebody's, I think you said this in your presentation, but in the essay that you did for museums on the web, but how do you compensate for somebody that's writing the tanks in Chinese, for example, instead of, of English? Um, are, do you foresee that in future occurrences or in future projects, you'll include or decide to include at least three or four variables of languages for the terms that you're using? Um. Well, I mean, depending on, on the project or like exhibition or event, the demographics vary quite a lot. And also, I mean, we have four galleries and um, the percentage of international visitors varies uh, across those four venues. But yeah, it's true mm -hmm. that, for example, Taste Modern um, has, um, I think, 40% of visitors are uh, international. Um, so yeah, uh, while I was doing the tax analysis, of course, I see <laughs> so it's um, in other different languages, and I could code those in Spanish, <laughs> but um, that's <laughs> it. I mean, <laughs> I cannot do Chinese. Um, but um, just with English ones, there's a huge amount of um, resources you need to invest in terms of uh, the technology. Um, to capture all these tweets uh, in different languages and also in analyzing the data. So, I don't know, maybe in the future as an experiment we can, we can try to include different languages, but in the day-to-day -day work, um, I don't see it as feasible. And maybe in the future technology will already do that by itself. I think, for example, the QRpedia codes that Lori Burke Phillips is using at the Children's Museum in Indianapolis. What, one of the particular things they do is that when you scan the QR code on your smartphone, the appy detects what the language on your smartphone is and delivers the Wikipedia article in the, in the corresponding language. So, of course, we're not talking about the same thing. Statistics is one thing and queries is another way of doing things. But it's, it's, I think, technology is helping out in that sense in recognizing that language also needs to be taken into account when delivering or analyzing content. It kind of raises an interesting question around, you know, as the kind of museum moves from being a place where we simply produce content to a place where we're kind of, we're kind of platform for participation. So if you're, you know, the uh, the walls, you know, the texts on the walls are translated into multiple languages, not not on the walls themselves, but they're available, you know, either in kind of leaflets within each room or they're available from an information desk. Uh, and that's, you know, it's a very expensive thing to do is to keep tr to translate all this material, but clearly it's, it, you know, it's used a great deal uh, mm -hmm. by people whose first language is not English. But if we move to this phase where 
you know, the kind of museum is a is a kind of digital community in a place where audiences interact with us and where things like you know new activities within the museum start to emerge you know like uh, you know roles like community manager and now one that you start to see a museum is the expectation also that that community manager will only manage a community in one language so if you know we can tell some spam posted on our website uh, if it's in English but if it's in Chinese we can't and, and mm -hmm. uh, and you know, at some point, that's going to become an issue. Yeah. Well, actually, <laughs> already. I was speaking last week with um, a creator of interpretation and with the um, new interactive uh, world at Tate Modern. They have people responding in different languages, and they can more or less use Google Translator to see the the topic and, and what they are saying. But there is also um, an option to draw, to do some drawings, and that is more complicated if, because in some of them there is text to see and moderate uh, those those comments and those drawings. And I, I do think it's it, it's a challenge, and more so. I mean, the larger the museum, the more well, right. Depending also on the location, if you're in a very cosmopolitan city, probably your staff will also be correspondingly cosmopolitan and you will probably have a couple of people that have a, a native language different than the dominating one. Um, in our case, in, in San Juan, Puerto Rico, everybody's main language is in Spanish. We're not that international yet. Um, so it's, I think it's an interesting challenge for, for bigger museums in a way because their audience is so diverse. And, and because the audience is also becoming more demanding of, of that interaction, of that, um, of that dialogue, that it, w it will be interesting to see how technology maybe helps out further on in, in the process. So we're almost at the time where I promised the interview would be over. So I'll quickly shoot two more questions and um, let's and then open up for discussions. I think if Jennifer has anything to say. So um, one of the questions is, what is usually the museum's most engaging content posted on social media sites? And this is maybe something that can be talked about in rele relevance to the analytics. And also, for the comments collected about the tech, were there major differences between the comments posted at the site, um, physically with post-its on the wall, or the those that were tweeted. Um, okay, started from uh, the last one. Uh, for the tank, yes, there were two options: one to give a comment on a sticker, and the other one via uh, social media. Um, in terms of volume of comments, there were much more stickers. There were used, um, approximately 100,000 stickers were used um, during the 15 weeks. And mm -hmm. there were approximately 3,000 tweets uh, that appeared on, on the wall. The, the experience was quite uh, a bit different um, because the sticker was people were able to do drawings and the comment stayed uh, in the gallery. And there were some prompts, um, some questions there, and it was easier to reply with the sticker. 
um, because via Twitter people had to log in using um, a widget. So that created um, a barrier in order to respond to a specific questions. However, people talk a lot about their experience um, in general. And some people said that they did not want to tweet because it was, I mean, not without any context if they, if their friends um, would see it. Um, so it, it, it was a, a bit of a different um, experience. And regarding the most um, engaging content uh, on, on social media, well, it really varies what engagement <laughs> means uh, for different people um, in the in the organization. Um, and if you go to the very detail of each tweet or each post, each one has um, a different objective. In some cases, uh, will be more, more about creating awareness. Um, in others, more about uh, conversa creating conversation about a topic, or in some others, to bring um, traffic, um, for example, to a blog post, and then the conversation can happen um, on, on the website. Um, but analyzing um, the social media activity, um, you can identify some um, key, uh, I mean, some different factors that affect the, the response uh, from users. And those are, for example, um, how you use um, images. Um, and now, now Twitter has changed as well, and now you can see images. So that affects the number, for example, of shares and likes on a Facebook post as well. Um, mm -hmm. Another factor is the, the tone of the tweet and how, how you, um, I mean, if you add a question as well, or if you have a call to action, the interaction and the engagement uh, may be higher, um, and also the theme and the topic of, uh, of your post or tweet. So for example, we have um, a very successful activity, which is the um, uh, weather forecast. So every Friday, um, uh, we post, I mean, based on the weather that is going, uh, we're going to have for the weekend, and the social media team picks um, an artwork uh, from the collection that represents that weather. And that has been really, really successful for many years. Hmm. Well, that's, uh, that's interesting. And I think that can give people a sense of what to look for, what to be, what to be watching out for uh, when, they're, when their public starts engaging with them. Um, let's see, Jennifer, do you have any questions? Yes, I did. Can you all hear me? Yes. Yes. Great. Um, I just wanted to pick up on a few things you said throughout this interview and ask, uh, I guess, a philosophical question of sorts. If um, if you're seeing the Tate becoming a brand that's articulated by multiple voices, while at the same time it's serving increasingly as a platform for participation, including by a growing digital community, and you know, each voice, as you describe it, each voice of the Tate has the potential to have the same weight online, whether it's a recent hire or it's you know, the director of the press office. While at the same time, each audience has the opportunity to engage the Tate and its content according to whatever its own preferred channels might be. So, you know, maybe they primarily engage the Tate on site rather than online. Uh, it seems to me that you have this potential for a situation in which you end up with many different Tates. And so I was kind of curious from your points of view, to what extent this is an advantage, and to what extent 
one case while online. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, no, it is very, it is, uh, I mean, that's the, the kind of tension at the moment. So, I mean, I definitely see it as an advantage when looking at all the kind of different things that the organization does. Okay, let me, let me do this slightly differently. When, when you come to the gallery, the experience that you have is there constructed of interactions with lots of individuals. So the person at the information desk as you walk through the door and the information that you see there and if you go on a you know a kind of a guided tour through the exhibition or if you go to a talk in the evening and if you go to the auditorium and there's a you know there's a kind of seminar and there are questions asked there and there are con uh, curators answering questions and engaging in discussion about the artworks. So in a sense, we've always done this. And there's always been many, you know, people within the building who have kind of helped, helped your experience and, you know, whether that's a visit or, or an education experience or, or to do research in the, in the reading rooms of the library and archive or to go to the members room. And the shift is that these, these activities are now taking place in the digital kind of world. And hitherto, what we've done is primarily used the website and social media for kind of broadcast. And there are notable examples of where we've, we've done other things, but you know, it's a kind of accelerating journey towards you know, research and, and you know, the, the, the virtual reading room where you can access all the archival materials and the kind of research seminar taking place digitally via some kind of discussion forum potentially or something. And so I think there's not too much for, the, for, for us to be scared of because we've employed all these people and we trust them to stand in front of an auditorium of 200 people and to say something intelligent and get a good conversation going. And now what we need to do is apply those same skills and that same person into the digital world. Um, well, but it's the scale that's different. Mm -hmm. Because that conversation in the auditorium isn't getting indexed by Google the next day. You know, and it doesn't have a permanent life necessarily in the way that an oral communication has. Right, yeah, exactly. So how, I mean, it's very interesting that you talk about sort of the physical experience of on site having a kind of a process that allows multiple experiences, but it is, you know, it's channeled through, in a sense, the front entrance, and then there's a process, and then I guess you're already doing this to some extent because you know who you're talking to because people are signing bylines online. So you know, you know, it's the curator who's, telling you about a particular object? Is it an educator? Is it um, someone else? Is it uh, uh, someone from outside the tape commenting? So you have a way, I guess, of, of sort of tracking sort of who's who and who's saying what and, and allowing your audience to see that. Um, 
but are there ways in which you might envision the kind of either the content workflow or the experience of the state in digital media and online that might uh, either take advantage of sort of creating these sort of structures or paths of experience in ways that might maximize the advantages and, and minimize some of the things people might be afraid of? Uh, yeah, definitely. And, and it's a kind of design problem. So when you come into an art gallery and you see someone sitting behind a desk that says information, you, you understand that that's a person that knows what information there is and, and they're tasked with getting it for you. And it would probably be pretty good. So and one of the things that we're going to work on for next year is, and it's been on the kind of to-do list for a while, is when you see these bylines on the website and you know, can you kind of click on the person's name and find out who that is and what they do. So if I write something about uh, the painter Turner, you know, it, it may be interesting or it may be boring, but it certainly won't be as good as if you go to our Turner scholar who spent the last 20 years of their life working on this. Uh, and we do need to somehow kind of layer those experiences so it's kind of a bit clearer who you're talking to about what. In the same way that when you come into the, you know, in the gallery, you kind of know who has what role. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. It's a really interesting challenge. And I, I think, I mean, from my point of view, I, I'm an academic working in a university setting, and there's always that concern when you try and get students involved in academic projects. You know, so where does the authority lie, and to what extent is it good content, and how much editorial control do you have to have over it? But then, too much editorial control, you shut down areas of inquiry. Um, yeah, it's, it's very, very challenging. Um, going in a completely different direction, as a point of curiosity, um, based on your metrics, what what do you expect the experience level or comfort level of your audience, uh, of the majority of your audience, to be? online? I mean, are, are you envisioning sort of, I, I guess to some extent you have the whole gamut from the sort of digital native expert, you know, easy, easy to navigate everything to somebody who, you know, basically goes online to um, check opening hours or something. But, but in terms of figuring out how to go online, entirely online as an institution, every person in the institution or, or, or department in the institution having an online presence, how do you, uh, what is your audience look like and how do you, I guess, react to that or teach your staff to react to that appropriately? Um, and one of the things that we're, th we're thinking about is, is, is a kind of audience segmentation or a list of sort of, you know, you know defined by goals that visitors are trying to make. Mm -hmm. And we have such a segmentation for the visits to the gallery, and they, you know, that's quite a well understood language within the organization. Mm -hmm. So, and we can talk about various aspects of the program and various experiences in the light of that, you know, um, you know different, different membership of different segments. Um, and one of the things that we're kind of very keen on is that we have that level of understanding of our online, online audiences and our digital visitors so that we can you know, have, a, have a kind of shared language within the organization. Uh, because what we see at the moment a lot is, a very, is that people around the organization are, have a very strong focus on product mm. rather than on impact. Mm -hmm. 
So they're very keen on a digital thing that they want rather than a clearly defined audience need that needs fulfilling in, in whatever way they have in mind. Thank you. Both of you for a very interesting conversation. I, that's all, those were all my questions. Thanks, Debbie. Thank you, all three of you, for joining us for today's interview. We really appreciate your time. And Jennifer, thank you also for joining in. Um, if you have any last advice or comments, um, I did want to actually close the talk, um, and maybe if you want to give a little bit more, but I did in the issue, the International Institutional Strategy Digest, where you participated, um, you made a very interesting comment with one of the one of the statements that John I'm referring to that John made in terms of his article where he says that in the future the digital strategy will be embedded across the organization and in the future there will be no need for digital strategy and I think that's I don't know it really resonated with me because I think that's what we're striving for just to have it be as instinctive as possible and not have to have somebody being the, the taskmaster on this. Right, so we'll need kind of coordination that the digital activity will happen across the organization. And, I mean, that's definitely where we're moving to, we hope, one day. And then I will be out of a job. <laughs> oh, oh, no. Things are changing so fast that we'll never be out of a job. There will be always something to do, always something new to try on. So just, we need adventurers, we need the people that are pushing the limits, and that's us. So thank you so much, everyone, for joining in on this morning's talk. I'm going to stop the recording now. Thank you. Thank you for